What are you discarding from your life in your recovery? And what are you keeping in your life? And what are you adding? Welcome to episode 212 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Catherine, Claudia, Amy, and Eric. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Catherine, Claudia, Amy, and Eric, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps a few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at The Recovery Show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. I hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I am your host today. I'm basing today's show on a, a blog post that I recently heard referred to on another recovery podcast, which is Online Recovery Support Radio. Yeah. The reading came from a blog, Traversing the Fantasy, and the title of the reading is PSA, I Didn't Get Sober for This Shit. I didn't get sober to play it safe, to take the easy way out, to not take risks, to not make every single day a new quest for buried treasure. I didn't get sober to sit around and think about how scary the future might be. I didn't get sober to not embrace change, to make decisions based on fear, to not make decisions based on fear. I didn't get sober to live in fear. I didn't get sober to not fulfill my purpose in this lifetime, to not discover what that purpose might be, to not be painstaking about what I effing desire and who I effing desire and what I effing deserve and who I don't effing need around me anymore. I didn't get sober to feel sorry for myself, to listen to that ever-so-subtle voice that says, you aren't good enough. I didn't get sober to wonder whether I'm valued by the people in my life, to feel like I'm as important as what color socks you happen to put on this morning. I didn't trudge through a thousand foul fires of self-centered, self-loathing fears and make it through to the other side, against all odds, just to hear you say, I like you, but... I didn't get sober for this shit. I didn't get sober to play games to cut corners. I didn't get sober to date the same people I dated when I was wasted and lonely and ashamed. I didn't get sober to be the same person. I didn't get sober to feel invisible or misunderstood or alienated. I didn't get sober to hide or cower or crawl or crumble. I didn't shatter every single one of my beliefs and dismantle every single idea about myself and then put the pieces back together in a perfectly imperfect fashion only to second-guess myself. I didn't arise from the ashes like a mother-effing phoenix to censor myself, to be tamed by someone else's whack standards, to be that brand that everyone likes, that, that girl who everyone thinks is sweet, to write shit that doesn't piss people off, to wonder if I'm making the right choice, to not trust myself, to settle. I didn't get sober for this shit. I didn't get sober to avoid getting my heart broken, to avoid falling apart, to avoid getting hurt. I didn't get sober to lie to myself, to say, maybe this time it will be different. I didn't get sober to make the same old mistakes. I got sober to make new ones and to learn from them. I didn't make it out barely still alive to be complacent, to be quiet, to please you to give my power away to other people, to give my heart away, to act like it's not the most precious thing I have, like I'm not the most precious thing I have. I didn't get sober because I was scared to die. I got sober because I was scared to not live. I didn't get sober to not preach to myself every day, to not feel empowered, 
to not know that I'm a sandstorm, a force of effing nature, an atmosphere, an eternal garden of Eden, to not be the queen of my own existence. I didn't get sober to fear what you think of me, to fear what any of you reading this right now think of me, to not make the remarkable dream that I dream a reality every single day. I didn't get sober to not be in love with myself and in love with my life and my friends and my job and my mind and my spirit, to not be in love with my flaws, to not be true to myself, to not be authentic, to not show up just as I am right now. To not feel everything, to not grow, transform, unfurl, unwind, let go, be held. Are you seeing the picture I'm painting yet? Do I need to keep going? Claro? I'm not looking for someone to complete me or make me happy or call me babe. I'm looking for someone who can help me reinvent myself as often as necessary for true growth to occur. Someone more than a catalyst, more than a muse, more than just a good F. I'm looking for someone who points out the beauty I have yet to truly see, who is down to create an effing empire, down to destroy some shit and rebuild, down to hack into some scars, slay some dragons, jump through some flaming hoops, someone who's down to make some irreversible leaps of effing faith. I don't need you to buy me dinner, or like my Instagram posts, or tell me I'm pretty. I want you peeled back, uncut, unedited, unfiltered, stripped raw. I want you to lay me bare, or I don't want you at all. There's so much, there's so much powerful feeling. There's so much powerful faith. There's so much powerful being that I find in this, in this reading. And when I read it for myself, obviously, I make a few changes in, in maybe the words. I make a few changes in particular in the word sober. And I have to think about my emotional sobriety. I did not get emotionally sober to play it safe, to take the easy way out, to not take risks, to not make every single day a new quest for buried treasure. I didn't get emotionally sober to sit around and think about how scary the future might be didn't get emotionally sober to not embrace change, to make decisions based on fear, or to not make decisions based on fear. I didn't get emotionally sober to live in fear. Those last couple of sentences in particular, and the whole paragraph's really about fearlessness, I think. And for me, a lot of my life, pre-recovery and in early recovery, was still based in fear. The things I did before I found the Al-Anon program, the things I did to try to get my alcoholic to stop drinking, they were totally based on fear of what might happen, fear of losing her, fear of the money that it was costing us, fear of an unknown future. You know, the first time when I read this, there's this sentence, I didn't get sober to make decisions based on fear or to not make decisions based on fear. And that, that was one of the things that I did or didn't do, which is that because of my fear, I would just put off making a decision. I would put off taking a chance. I would put off doing the thing that I was really knew was the right thing for me to do because I was afraid that I wouldn't be able to accomplish it. I was afraid that I might not reach the goal that I wanted to reach. And in consequence, by not making the decision, I then had no change. I just ended up wherever things took me, rather than 
doing what I could to, to bend the path that I was on towards an outcome that I might more desire. Working this program of recovery, and in particular, working the middle set of steps, the fourth step inventory, the fifth step of confession, the sixth and seventh steps of asking for help, working those steps enabled me to find a way out of some of the fears that were driving my life, that were causing me to not make decisions or to make decisions based on fear, to make decisions to not step out, to make decisions to not take a risk, to make decisions to not try something new. I didn't get sober to not fulfill my purpose in this lifetime, to not discover what that purpose might be. A few years ago, I was challenged by a New Year's sermon to consider what my values are and how they align with my actions and how they give me purpose. It was difficult for me to, uh, to really think about that because there were things that I knew that I did that, you know, I could say, well, that's not in alignment with my values, but to actually state some words. And what was really helpful was, uh, I think it was an episode of what was at the time called Podcast Answer Man Podcast. It's now called the Cliff Ravenscraft Show, where he talked about his values and he defined them in terms of the way that his values lead him to act. That was very helpful to me because I could say, okay, I a value if is integrity, where I act in all things according to my true self. I state my beliefs honestly and openly. Commitment. I do not make commitments I cannot keep, and I keep the commitments I make, and so on. If you really want to know, go back and listen to, to episode 101. But that speaks to this paragraph, I didn't get emotionally sober to not fulfill my purpose, to not discover what that purpose might be. That has been a journey, and discovering a purpose, discovering purposes of my life. For a long time, my purposes in life were get my kids to adulthood and get my wife to stop drinking and make money so we could have a house and food and so on. That's okay. Maybe those are purposes, but they're not. They're mundane, ordinary. Do I have a non-mundane purpose. And one of the purposes that I discovered is expressed in step 12, to carry the message of recovery to others. And I do that through this podcast. I do that through my attendance at meetings. I do that through sponsoring other people. And I'm doing that through my engagement with a small step study group that started a, a couple of months ago. So that is a purpose purpose to carry the message. I believe that another purpose that I discovered in recovery, because I started waking up and actually finding that there was more to life than putting one foot in front of the other to keep the family together, to make my wife sober, which of course didn't work. I found other purposes, and one of those purposes is in working with teenage youth to help them make a healthy transition to adulthood. 
And that is something that I do through my faith community and that brings me joy and I believe helps to make the world a better place. So that the, those are purposes that I found in recovery to discover what my purpose might be and to be painstaking about it. I didn't get emotionally sober to feel sorry for myself, to listen to that ever so subtle voice that says you aren't good enough. That voice has been in my head for years. That voice has been in my head, I think, since childhood. I don't know how it got there. I can't say that I was ignored as a child. I, I believe I had a fairly good family and very supportive parents. And so I don't know where it came from, but it definitely is there. That voice that says you aren't good enough. And recovery gives me the tools, most particularly the inventory tool, to discover that I am good enough in many ways. And discover that in those places where I, quotes am not good enough, I'm not uniquely flawed. I'm not uniquely bad. This is, to me, one of the real things that I get from going to meetings, from listening to other people talk about their recovery, is to find that the things that I most hate about myself, the things that I most want to change, the things that most make me feel that I'm not good enough are also present in other people. I had that experience yesterday. I went to an open talk, and the speaker spoke of the way that throughout her life she had, I'm trying to remember the word she used, she had relationships that were overly enmeshed, that were overly needy, that where she put her whole well-being into the hands of the other person in a friendship. And I just totally connected with that because I have done that to try to find fulfillment in another person. I am learning in recovery to find fulfillment in myself and to notice when I'm starting to put my serenity, to put my whole being into the hands of somebody else and to realize that this is not good for me and it's not good for the other person and it's not good for our friendship. I didn't get emotionally sober to wonder whether I am valued by the people in my life. Because if my value comes from you, then I spend all my time wondering and hoping that you value me. When I am able to find value in myself, I don't need to do that anymore. I didn't get sober to play games to cut corners. I didn't get sober to feel invisible or misunderstood or alienated. I didn't get sober to hide or cower or crawl or crumble. Where this speaks to me is in the part of me that sort of for all my life wanted to express myself differently than I thought the people around me expected, but didn't because then you would see me then you would see me as different. And although I wanted to be different, I didn't want to be seen as different. And so I would hide. I would try to be invisible. As I've talked about on the, on the podcast several months ago, I decided I actually took the decision to put some color in my hair. And this, this was not really subtle color. This was kind of bright color. And the first time I did it, 
we did it sort of to a middle layer, so there was a layer of uncolored hair over top and then the colored hair, and so it was it was there, it could it could pop out, but it it wasn't in your face. And the second time I did it, we, we made the color a little more up front and a little more bold and and by now, you know, you look at me from the front and I think the impression you get is purple, which turns out to be has always been my favorite color, but I hid that from myself for a long time. And I still worry about how people will see it, although the experience has been really, actually, what's the word I want here? Has been supportive. So many people just randomly walk by and say, hey, I love your hair, or great hair, dude. But I went to visit my parents last week, and they hadn't seen my hair with color in it yet. And I was wondering, well, what are they going to think? What are they going to say? Are they going to be shocked? Are they going to not like it? They didn't say anything. <laughs> it was really funny. I just had this thing all built up in my head. I'm going to walk in and they're going <gasps> to, they didn't say anything at all. Which in a way was sort of disappointing. And in a way just sort of showed me that the things that I fear in my head, the things that I project in my head are not reality. They are totally not reality. I didn't get emotionally sober to second-guess myself, to censor myself, to be tamed by somebody else's standards, to be that brand that everyone likes. And there's a few people that are not wild about my hair. My boss, for example, recently said something about weird color, which actually I think was maybe the first time he had mentioned it in several months. So, you know, not, not huge, but okay, he's not totally approving of it. And that's okay, because I know that I am valued for what I do at work, not for, and well, and for who I am, but not for what I look like, right? That's, that's not what's important there. I didn't get sober to make the same old mistakes. I got sober to make new ones and learn from them. And for me, I think the starting point of that is making the same old mistakes and then learning from them and then maybe making new mistakes and learning from them. I didn't get sober to please you, to give my power away to other people, to give my heart away to act like it's not the most precious thing I have. Uh, yeah. And down here at the end, I'm not looking for someone to completely or make me happy or call me babe. I'm looking for someone who can help me reinvent myself as often as necessary for true growth to occur. And those are the people that I want in my life. I spent so much of my life looking for someone to complete me, to make me happy. I didn't know how to find completeness or happiness in myself. I needed to find it from you. I needed you to approve. I needed you to want the things that I wanted. I needed you to, to fill me up. I'm finding, I'm finding that with the help of a higher power, I do that myself. And you know what? It's a lot easier and it works. Whereas waiting for you to fill me up, waiting for you to complete me, waiting for you to make me happy, Kind of doesn't. Kind of doesn't. Those are some of the things that, that I found in the way that reading, that writing, I guess, connects to my life. And I know there's more. I know there's a lot more in there that I could unpack. 
I would love to hear your thoughts. I would love to hear how you connect with different parts of that reading. Call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Use the voicemail button on the website. Record a share using the voice memo application on your smartphone and email it. Or just send email to feedback at therecovery.show and add your voice. Let us know how this touched you. After a short break, we'll continue with our lives in recovery, where we talk about how recovery works in our daily lives and in our meetings. And how a lot of fun picking music for this. Uh, so, so many choices. So I'm recording this outside in the uh, what we call the back 40 behind my church. And it's right underneath the flight path to the local airport. And so every now and then we get a plane flying overhead. That is, can't get pretty loud. The first, first musical selection, which you can listen to on the website at therecovery.show slash 212, is by Alanis Morissette. The song is That I Would Be Good. And this is a song about, really it's a song about acceptance. Accepting who we are as we are right now, has lyrics such as, that I would be good even if I did nothing, that I would be good even if I got the thumbs down, that I would be good if I got and stayed sick, that I would be good even if I gained 10 pounds, and so on. And the whole song is about affirmation that I'm okay, that I'm good, that I'm fine, that I'm great, even if Things that seem negative happen. Things, things that maybe I really want don't happen. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery, what's happening in our meetings and in our lives this week. And since I'm here by myself, it's, it's my life. It's been a couple weeks. I was traveling. I went to see my family went to my parents' house, and my brother flew from California. Our one child flew in from Colorado. Our other one uh, drove with us because she lives nearby, and my sister lives near my parents. So I had my whole sort of genetic family together in one place for several days. We stayed less than a week, partly because the one time we tried to stay for a whole week, we found ourselves getting on each other's nerves um, pretty severely. And so, uh, you know, what, five days, I think, was that, that we were there, Thursday through Tuesday, whatever that works out to. It was a good visit. We was concerned about our parents' health. They're both aging. They're both diminishing in capacity. They both have some memory deficit, and that's a little bit scary because they're they're still living by themselves in a house out in the country. Beautiful location overlooking a lake, but out in the country. So I went in with that concern, but I also went in using my program to encourage myself to be there, to be present, to enjoy with gratitude what we had, because we don't know how much longer we'll have it. And it was a good visit. And one of the things that that we, the children, had promised ourselves was that we would do some cleaning 
they have, as, as they're older and life is just harder for them, they're not, they're not keeping up with keeping the place really clean. So we went in and, and we just did it and you know, went out and bought some supplies, bought a Swiffer, which my father was just amazed at. He said, wow, you just push it around and it picks up all that dust that you can't even see on the floor. So I have hope that, that maybe they'll continue to use that because it's, it's so easy to use. We changed some light bulbs that were 20 feet up and some ceiling fan fixtures so that there was light in the, uh, the living room area from above again. All of them had burnt out and they hadn't been able to get up there and change them, need a ladder and so on. So we did that for them. I spent one morning just cleaning the kitchen counter. It felt good. And they seemed to be grateful rather than feeling like, oh, we were judging them for being untidy and, and appreciate that. So it was a good visit. And it kept me in the moment. It kept me in the moment. It kept me in acceptance when everything with them takes longer than it used to, when they insist on trying to do things that they're maybe not so capable of doing anymore, but they want to, to let that happen. And I saw some wonderful connection between my children and my parents that I think hadn't been there in some previous visits. My daughter spent, I think, a couple of hours sitting with my mother and talking about a photo album, I think from when I was a kid, and talking about what she, my daughter, is now involved in. It seemed really authentic and real. It wasn't like she was trying to make nice to her grandmother. It, was, it wasn't like she was trying... She thought, well, I have to, I have to do this thing. And she felt like that was, that was what was really happening. I found an old photo album that I think had come from my grandmother or grandfather with photos of our family when I was between the ages of about four and eight or something like that. We went through it and my mother really kind of perked up and, and was helping us to identify where and who were in the photos because they weren't really labeled. Without her memory, it would have been very hard to, to know what was going on with some of them. You know, which house was it? Who's, which relative is this? Is this somebody that we actually know who it is anymore? That was, and that was fun. I took a pencil and I, I wrote in uh, on the paper of the photo album so that next time we look at it, we'll, we'll know. That's, that's the, Big thing that happened in my life the last couple of weeks, I think. Did go, as I said, to uh, Al-Anon Open Talk yesterday. It was a really, really good talk. Although the person who was talking, her situation was nowhere, in, in no way identical to mine, in no way, I mean, in, in really in no way similar to mine. Her internal feelings about things were very similar. I talked to her afterwards and called out a couple of these points of similarity. And she said, yeah, this is, some of these things are really hard for me to talk about. I have a lot of shame about them, but I know that whenever I do talk about them, other people identify and other people know that it's not just them. 
And it's not just me. And it helps us both to maybe get past, get through that shame to acceptance. So good experience there. And as I said, if you want to call and share your thoughts about this episode, your questions about or thoughts about past episodes or ideas for topics for upcoming episodes, you can call and leave us a voicemail, 734-707-8795. You can use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. And if you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at therecovery.show. All of these contact methods and more information is on the website at therecovery.show slash contact or go to therecovery.show and in the menu at the top of the page, click or tap on contact us. Take a short break before looking at what's in our mailbag. The second musical selection, also available on the website at therecovery.show slash 212, is Fast Car by Tracy Chapman. And I know we've used this song at least a couple times before. It's a song about wanting to change your life, wanting her wanting to change her life. And somebody had to point out to me that in the song, she's been putting her life on hold, taking care of her alcoholic father, and realizes that she needs to get out, that she needs to not be trapped by other people in a situation. And so I thought that connected with the, with the topic here. I didn't get sober for this shit. A couple of weeks worth of voicemails and emails. I appreciate all of them. Michelle left a voicemail uh, with her thoughts about alcoholism as a disease. Hey, Spencer. This is Michelle from Northeast Florida. I wanted to leave a message on the topic of alcoholism as a disease and how, you know, I've kind of come to understand that. Uh, I had a really hard time with it at first, especially with my mom, because she would be telling me, you know, one minute telling me that she had a disease and the next minute flagging down a waiter for another Cosmo. And I always was really resentful because I felt like she kept choosing to engage in these behaviors even while acknowledging that she had a disease. But what I learned when I went to family group was that the disease overrides the conscious choice that oftentimes, you know, you hear stories about alcoholics who walk into the gas station for milk and come out with a six pack. You know, at some point, the body is doing something that the mind has not chosen to do. And I experienced that in my own life. You know, I have my own isms. And if I'm not careful, I can get wrapped up in these addictive behaviors. And luckily for me, I don't have the, you know, the physical allergy to alcohol. But I learned in my family programs that, you know, as Bill W. said, at one point we could have stopped. You know, they, they told me in the family programs that, you know, at some point a switch gets flipped. And, you know, the alcoholic becomes unable to control their drinking. And that scared me enough in my early 20s to keep me away from hard nights of drinking. And thank God I'm still on the end of being able to control it. But I do catch myself in compulsive behaviors. For instance, I'll be, you know, just sitting in traffic at a stoplight. And next thing I know, I've reached over and I've grabbed my phone and I've opened up my latest social media app. And at no point did I ever make the conscious decision to do that. I find myself you know, scrolling my social media compulsively. I'm not making a choice to do it, and that worries me. So I've had recently to take steps where I've had to remove those apps. And then 
what's funny is that even after removing the app to my phone, I find myself almost like, you know, a ghost app reaching to my phone and scrolling to where that app would be, again, compulsively not making that choice. And I think it's much the same way for the alcoholic is that the body is making decisions that the mind isn't signing off on first. And so that's really helped me understand the disease component of it and the compulsive component of it. You know, in addition to the physical allergy that makes, you know, one drink too many and a hundred not enough. So being able to see the trace in myself and how, you know, without recovery, I could easily engage in all sorts of compulsive and addictive behaviors um, gives me a lot more compassion for the alcoholic. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for your thoughts. Thank you for your wisdom. Gretchen wrote, Hi, Spencer and friends. Thank you so much for your recent episode on death. I looked forward to listening because my mom is in late-stage kidney failure and I'm having a hard time facing her impending end. It feels even harder because my alcoholic husband is so wrapped up in his own suffering that he has no support to offer and often reacts angrily if I talk about my sadness. But as I listened to the podcast, I focused more on my fears about my husband dying from his drinking. He has already suffered some serious effects, but he keeps going. It scared me to hear one woman share that her parents' deaths may have been the most merciful option because they didn't have a plan for living. My husband doesn't have a plan. He has experienced a lot of trauma and never figured out how to work through it and is not stuck with AA or therapy despite saying they helped. I'm scared and sad. I'm doing my best to care for myself and accept that he will do what he needs to do, but this is a really hard time for me. Thank you for giving me some relief through your podcast and thanks to everyone who calls or writes in. There were a few shares this week that resonated with me in some way. Gretchen. Thank you for writing, Gretchen. And I feel I feel your fear. I was there. I'm glad maybe we gave a little bit of relief. An email from Cynthia. Hi, Spencer. I discovered your podcast a few months ago and listened to it all the time. Your words of wisdom and openness have been very helpful to me during a difficult time. About a year ago, my only son started to spiral out of control. He started using drugs and alcohol, quit caring about his grades, and was hanging around with all the wrong people. In the past year, we have spent almost $100,000 between boarding school, therapists, and a 90-day treatment facility, none of which has been covered by insurance. I've attended many Al-Anon meetings, listened to podcasts, read books, but most of what I encounter are people talking about living with a spouse that's an alcoholic, like yourself, or people who are in Al-Anon because their parents were alcoholics. It's easy to talk about control versus influence when you're talking about an adult dealing with another adult, but I continue to flounder a bit when it comes to how to detach from a child who is still a minor. I told my therapist that I felt like I'm in an abusive relationship that I can't leave. If my husband treated me the way my son does, I would have been out months ago. I would never allow a man to talk to me with such disrespect or treat me with such indifference. Yet here I am, unable to leave because it's my house, unable to kick him out because we spent all our money and there's nowhere for him to go. It's incredibly frustrating to know how to help someone who isn't yet sick and tired of being sick and tired. I would love for you to address the topic of how to follow the principles of AA from the perspective of a parent with a child who is an addict. I know there have to be many people like myself out there in this situation who are desperate for some wisdom or just to know we are not alone. Thank you for your consideration and God bless you. Cynthia. Cynthia, we did one episode early in the recovery show. Number 22 was a parents roundtable. I think we had four parents talking about their experience with 
their alcoholic or addict children, you might find that helpful. And I have had guests um, over the years who who are parents uh, dealing with a child in addiction. I can't, for the moment, pull those episodes to to mind, but um, there is some of that in there. And and we certainly have talked about doing it, doing another couple of episodes on on parenting. And we haven't done it yet. Uh, you might check out at least episode 22. Sujata writes, Dear Spencer, thanks for the help with the links. I listen to a few other podcasts, but like yours better. I have a problem with the death of my parents. I feel that I have neglected them and their health in their last days as I paid more attention to my alcoholic husband. I always feel that I could have done better. This guy was also in and out of the hospital during those days once with atrial fibrillation due to binge drinking and a fracture of both his legs due to a fall. I tried going to the graves and asking for forgiveness, asking for a sign that I was not all that bad as I feel. It is a sinking feeling and wonder how to make amends. I'm still looking for some suggestions in case someone identifies with me. Thanks again, Sujata. And thanks for writing, Sujata, and thanks for saying you like mine better. I I like a number of different recovery podcasts in different ways, just like I like different meanings in different ways. And I'm glad that mine connects with you. You write about feeling guilt for action that you didn't take in the past around your parents and their death. And that is a really tough thing to deal with because you can't change what happened. You can't go back and do it differently. For me... I think there's two parts when I find myself with that sort of situation. The first is understanding that I was doing the best I could at the time with what I had, that I might not have done things perfectly, but I did them as best I could. And the second part where you ask about making amends, for me, the way I make amends for actions in the past that I wish I could have done differently is to live differently now. Emily writes, Spencer, episode 210 was really, this is the death episode, episode 210 was really beautiful, vulnerable, and honest, and I really appreciated it. It brought up a lot of feelings for me. When I was a child, long before I knew what alcoholism was, or that my mother was an alcoholic, I used to watch The Land Before Time, one of my favorite movies. When Littlefoot's mother died in the movie, I would cry and cry because the thought of my own mother dying was so petrifying that I couldn't even fathom the idea without completely falling apart. I spent many years playing a caretaker role, acting as an untreated Al-Anon to my alcoholic mother, frozen with fear that she would drink herself to death, which she almost did when I went away to college. Fortunately, she found sobriety and has stayed sober for eight years. Unfortunately, this didn't stop me from marrying an alcoholic addict almost ten years ago, And now those same fears are coming up again. I very much relate to what Spencer briefly touched on. The thought that maybe life would be easier if my ex-husband drugged himself to death. A thought that I have had. A thought that makes me feel incredible shame and guilt. But a real thought nonetheless. And if recovery has taught me one thing, it is that the truth sets you free. I don't want him to die. Because I remember the person that he is when he isn't under the influence. I know that he loves our daughter so very much. And is capable of being a great dad to her and I know that he is worthy of life. But sometimes pain causes irrational thoughts, and the disease of addiction causes pain. 
Today, I am incredibly grateful for the program of Al-Anon. It has saved my life, and it gives me hope every day for my future, my daughter's future, and even for the qualifiers in my life. I cannot express everything that this program has given me over the last year and a half. Thank you for all that you do and for your service in these podcasts, as they always help aid my recovery every week. Emily. Thank you. Thank you, Emily, for sharing your experience. Colleen called with a voicemail about dealing with domestic violence. Hi, Spencer. My name is Colleen. I am new to Al-Anon, very new, actually, and I found this podcast when searching for things to help better my thinking in between meetings. So I'm grateful for the podcast. Thank you so much for offering it. This morning I was listening to the podcast about controlling behavior, and at the end of the podcast there was some conversation about domestic violence. And uh, there was a a woman who had left a a voice message encouraging a podcast to that end, and I wanted to echo that. From my own lens and experience, while the alcoholic can become abusive, there are often partners or other family members who resort to abuse in in an effort to control either the alcoholic or the home environment, whose chaos most likely played a role in the road to addiction in the first place. I myself was raised in a home with a very violent mother and an alcoholic brother. And then I found myself in a marriage that over time displayed many marks of domestic violence, which ironically share many characteristics with alcoholism. But for four years, I served on a task force on behalf of our local family justice center that was committed to educating the public about domestic violence. And there are two very important pieces of information, this is the whole reason why I called, that I think are really important for your audience or you, you know, if you consider doing a podcast. And I'm happy to be a resource for further thinking or kick around ideas or whatever. First, if there is domestic violence occurring within a romantic relationship, if the if there's a couple who's married and one of them is abusing the other, or, you know, it's a committed relationship, do not encourage them to seek couples counseling. This is counterintuitive. Often in that space, the victim, for lack of a better term, is often forced to share or feels compelled to share information that the abuser will capitalize on outside of that safe space of counseling and will manipulate that information, uh, and it just creates a very unsafe space for the victim. So separate counseling is encouraged. Second, any time a person confesses that domestic violence is occurring in their home, we should believe them. Unless we are professionally trained in that arena, there is no way we can make a determination whether or not that individual is telling the truth. You want to believe them. Uh, They do a fine enough job minimizing the experience on their own. Our job as somebody who is being told that information is to get them or encourage them to seek professional help, maybe find them a family justice center, uh, offer to go with them. As I said, they do a fine job minimizing the situation themselves, and often though we have good intentions, we may try to minimize their experience because of our own anxiety, especially if we know the abuser or perpetrator. Typically, abusers are extremely charming to the public, 
and that information can be very unsettling to us if we know them and are told about the situation. So always believe the victim. Furthermore, in that same vein, if the victim is an alcoholic, then triage becomes necessary. Do they feel safe? Do they fear for their life? Believing that sobriety is the first goal can often keep someone in a potentially life-threatening situation. Moreover, removing them from the relationship or encouraging them to figure out how to leave the relationship may actually decrease their anxiety, which can decrease their symptoms of alcohol or their desire to drink. So those are my thoughts that I just wanted to share. I'm sorry, I'm very passionate on the topic of domestic violence. Thank you, Spencer. Thank you so much for the recovery show. And I want to thank you, Colleen, for that important information, some of which, as you said, is really non-intuitive, but important nonetheless. Barbara wrote, Thank you, Spencer and Eric. I started out looking for an episode on Recovered Podcast that would discuss irrational anger and rudeness in the alcoholic loved ones. But something caused me to say to myself instead, focus on yourself. What is my part? Then I turned to the recovery show and this episode appeared. Definitely what I needed to listen to. And it also, just by listening, made me feel more hopeful and positive. I'm sure walking while listening helped too, Barbara. And, and thanks, Barbara. It was a fun episode to do. And uh, as you say, yeah, came out of it feeling with a little more serenity and happiness, hopeful and positive. Another email. Hi, Spencer. My name is Sarah, and I'm a grateful member of the Recovery Show community. I've been in recovery for almost three years, and this podcast has been a huge part in keeping me focused on my own recovery program and not feeling alone. I'm listening to episode 211 and finding that I'm experiencing that sensation of finding a meeting topic resonates deeply with something I need to hear and address that is at the root of what my negative emotions have been circling around lately, if that makes sense. Even the topic itself speaks to something I've been struggling with lately. I feel incapable of extending love and compassion to my primary qualifier, my now ex-spouse, and I'm feeling really shameful about that. I feel like a failure at loving him when I actually think it's the disease of addiction that I'm incapable of forgiving, for the moment anyhow. Most days I have no problem whatsoever being kind to the stranger, but being kind to a loved one acting in their addiction, especially when those actions trigger fear or pain or my own pre-existing conditions of feeling less than, inadequate, unlovable, seems really, really hard for me today. I've heard detaching with love is the goal and the ideal, and that if I continue to work this program of recovery, I will get there. It seems as though right now I'm able to detach with contempt and anger. But at least I'm able to detach, and I'm no longer compelled to be enmeshed with the compulsive behavior of another person. So progress, not perfection, right? Thank you and Eric for the experience, strength, and hope on kindness, and I'm grateful in advance for any further experience, strength, and hope that can be offered here about how to work my recovery when love and compassion for someone's disease just isn't available to me. Thank you. On another note, I wanted to qualify a bit and offer some requests for show topics, as well as say I would be grateful to serve in any capacity to make those shows possible. The person that got me in the rooms to recovery is my now ex-wife, and her addiction was, is, compulsive sexual behavior. While she is identified as a sex addict, to my knowledge she is not in recovery now, nor was she during our marriage. I am a member of two other fellowships, specifically for friends and partners of SAs, and have found a lot of help as well in Al-Anon. I'm also a recovering alcoholic, and I'm currently working the steps through the big book of AA. Recovery is a huge part of my life, and I'm grateful for it. I heard once on the show a man call in who identified as an SA 
was inquiring about how to encourage his wife to attend Al-Anon. Have you considered doing a podcast on resources for families of different kinds of addicts? I only speak for myself and from my experience, but it has been incredibly healing to find a fellowship, to know that there are other human beings who have felt what I have felt and who have found relief and recovery from the effects of sex addiction. At the moment, there are no podcasts for the families of essays, but what a great thing that could be to have one day. And maybe reaching out to the Recovery Show community for others like me will put a team of us together that can make that happen. If you would consider such an episode, please let me know how I can help. I believe all of us, no matter the addiction we have been affected by, struggle with a lot of the same things and can help each other get through. My broken marriage got me into Al-Anon when I discovered that my spouse was not the first addict I had sought out a relationship with and that my FOO cooperated in the disease of addiction as well. Family of origin, ha, FOO. I was taught to be both an addict and a codependent, and I'm not alone. My family of origin and self-discovery continues as I continue to work the steps, but my marriage has recently ended in divorce. It's a painful sort of acceptance and can feel really alienating. I was relieved to hear you say in previous episodes that an episode on divorcing an alcoholic was upcoming. The decision to divorce was a milestone in my recovery, and the process leading up to it was my rock bottom, and I would love to share in the experience, strength, and hope of others facing the same if that episode is still in the works. Thank you again for your consistency and service. I hope to hear from you soon. Be well. Sarah. Thanks, Sarah. And certainly an episode about resources for people facing addictions other than alcohol could be very helpful. I, you know, personally don't have that experience. And so it would rely heavily on contributions from members of the Recovery Show community. If you would like to share your experience with other partner recovery programs, um, please write or call, and maybe we can put together an episode. Claudia writes, Hi, Spencer. Just finished listening to your July 26th show. That was the one on death. And these are my thoughts on the topic of living with death. My daughter lost her life last year as a consequence of her choices, a devastating loss for me. Her passing took me to a crossroads. I could go on with life as a resentful, bitter, angry mother, or I could face this tragedy with courage, acceptance, and hope for my future. My life would go on regardless of my choice. Either way, she would not come back. The question was, how would I rather spend this day, tomorrow, and the rest of my life? Under the guidance of my higher power, I started fostering the emotions and feelings that would get me out of the dark hole and push me forward. Forgiveness, compassion, and gratitude. I stopped asking questions that had no answer. I surrendered what I could never have and focused on what I hadn't lost. I understood that recovery is a choice, my choice, one that I make every day, and that it is also my right and my duty to move forward in life. I also understood that while I kept looking at the door that had closed forever, I would not notice the windows of opportunity that were opening just for me. I discovered that when I get out of the competition, it no longer matters what others do or have. I cannot change what is, it just is. I can make peace with what happened, though, and try to transform my losses by adjusting my perception, by embracing uncertainty and by trusting a loving God who knows what's best for me. Thank you for letting me share, and thank you, Spencer, for your weekly show, which is a great recovery resource for me while traveling in between meetings. Claudia. And thank you, Claudia. Thank you for those thoughts. That I feel like this, this email just connects so closely with the reading I opened the show with today. Lorian left a comment on the website on the Kindness and Courtesy episode 211. She says, what a great topic, Eric. Thank you, Spencer, for doing this. 
Your discussion especially highlighted the growth that comes from behaving with kindness. This left me thinking about the meditation just for today. It speaks of genuine kindness, not just the superficial, people-pleasing type that comes with a hidden agenda or expectations. Just for today, I will exercise my soul in three ways. I will do somebody a good turn and not get found out. If anybody knows of it, it will not count. Marianne continues, I'm learning in recovery that kindness includes presence, acknowledgement, appreciation, compassion, and usefulness, which may be beautifully contagious, though not always. Also, program tools are important for me to keep honest with my intentions and motives. What I might perceive as giving act might not actually be appreciated by the recipient. Confusing caretaking with kindness is also something I need to be careful about. I'm learning to give and let go of the result without expectation for a desired response, which is especially difficult. And then uh, she talks about the Just for Today bookmark, which provides meditations and a prayer to help us stay focused on what we can do just for today. That is available as a bookmark from Alnon. I know many of my meetings have it available on the literature table. And if you want to read what she copied from it, it will be as a comment, as I said, on the episode on the website, episode 211 at therecovery.show slash 211. She also sent a photo of a sign, she says, was posted in a classroom some years back where a meeting was being held. Social skills we will practice. Taking turns, being patient and respectful of others, giving compliments to classmates, listening to classmates and adults, using words to communicate needs and frustrations, showing concern for a classmate who is sad or hurt, appreciating and tolerating other people's differences, being aware that our actions and words nice or hurtful, have consequences, learning how to deal with the behavior of others, participating in cleanup time, taking care of and properly using school property and other people's property. And uh, a lot of that speaks to this practicing kindness and courtesy. Thanks, Lorianne, for that. It doesn't cost you anything to listen to The Recovery Show, but we do have expenses which run about $60 or more, actually, I think, a month. You can help to support us and keep us on the web and in your ear in a couple of ways. We have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly, just like Catherine, Claudia, Amy, and Eric did. And thank you again, Catherine, Claudia, Amy, and Eric, for your contributions and support. We have put together a list of recovery-related books. Click on the books link in the menu at the top of the page. If you order one of these books from Amazon through our website, we will receive a small commission. In fact, anything you order from Amazon after clicking on one of the links will help us. It costs you nothing extra and helps to keep us on the air. Thank you for your support in whatever form you give it. Whether it's sharing the podcast with your friends, simply direct them to therecovery.show, or just listening, we are here for you. And the last song that I selected for this episode is Going Through Changes by Eminem, which again you can listen to at therecovery.show slash 212. This is a, a song from his album titled Recovery, and it's about the experience of recovery and about how hard it is sometimes to change our way of life as we work in recovery, which I think is, again, what the reading is all about. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding love and peace grow in you one day at a time. Thank mm-hmm. you.